Well, we're going on with this fascinating story of the spread and growth of the early church. And uh, we came last week to its beginning, its toehold, its foothold in the continent of Europe. And uh, we heard about Paul's trouble. We heard about how the jailers were expected to come and uh, see them out of prison because they shouldn't have been put in and they shouldn't have been beaten. And then it says that the brothers take uh, leave of them and Paul and Silas, and I think Timothy was there as well, they set off, apparently leaving Luke behind. And the story no longer talks about we, it talks about they. So Luke was the author, apparently he stayed behind. And we don't hear of him again until Paul comes back to Philippi later on in chapter 20. So these three pass through two other places, Apollonia um, and uh, uh, Amphipolis, before they arrive at Thessalonica. The experts tell us it's about 100 miles and that people often walked about 18 to 20 miles a day. So you can imagine these intrepid men walking for five days and they come to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was an important city, the capital of the whole area, capital of Macedonia. It was the largest city, as you would expect, in the whole area, much larger than Philippi. The population varies in the experts' estimation between 100,000 and 200,000. It was founded 500 years before. It was a busy seaport with all the connections of trade and travel that that would bring. And it was also on a trade route, a land trade route. So it was a center for trade and travel. Religiously, there was a sizable Jewish community there. Uh, but most of the people would have believed in the Roman and Greek gods that were commonly worshipped. It was a pagan city. And uh, really, it's a bit like uh, Antioch that sent Paul out in the first place, a very similar kind of city. And uh, I think Paul would say to himself, this is an ideal place to plant a church, a center for trade and travel. So he goes to the synagogue, first of all. Remember in Philippi, he went to where there was a place of prayer, no synagogue, not enough men, David told us last week. Uh, but now there is a synagogue, and apparently quite a sizable one. Why did he do that? Well, the Jews believed that the Old Testament was God's word to them, God's word that could not be broken. And of course, this was an ideal place to begin his preaching and his teaching. He had an audience immediately. He didn't have to gather one. And uh, we read that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and rise from the dead. So he went back to the Old Testament first of all, and he began to teach them what they hadn't understood about the coming of the Messiah. 
And when he'd done that, he then says, Now, I want to tell you about the Messiah having come. And he tells them about the life and the death of Jesus, and then about the resurrection of Jesus. Very important part of the Gospel. And he says to him, Look, this Jesus is the Messiah. And he would have gone on to explain as well why the Messiah came and why he had to die as an offering for sin. But opposition grows very quickly. Some are convinced, but there is determined opposition. Not from pagans this time. In Philippi it was pagans that had lost their income from a particular girl. But now it comes from the Jews. And probably the Jews here means the the Jewish leaders, just like it does in the Gospel of John. It talks about the Jews, meaning really the leaders. And we can imagine the leaders there in Thessalonica getting very upset at what Paul was saying. They didn't believe him and they want to stop him. And so they stir up a mob, one of the translation calls them wicked men from the rabble and they're determined to shut Paul up start a riot they go to this house of Jason looking for Paul and Silas we don't know anything really about Jason obviously he was a believer and apparently he was the host of Paul and Silas Uh, but we don't know anything else about him and they are dragged into court when eventually they find Paul, and they brought into court on a charge of civil unrest. Serious charge, being accused of sedition and treason in those days could cost you your life. They twist Paul's words about the kingship of Jesus and his coming in judgment. He obviously spoke about that. We find that in the letters. They twist these words saying that Paul was speaking against Caesar. Well, the magistrates this time uh, are more fair than in Philippi. But they play safe, and uh, Jason is bound over in a sum of money to keep the peace. Uh, The new Christians sent the missionaries on to Berea. How long did they stay? That is a puzzle as you read the uh, scripture. Just over two weeks, it says three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them uh, in the synagogue. But he obviously had a very significant impact on the community. And it's hard to see that this degree of opposition was stirred up in just a couple of weeks. And uh, in his letters which were written weeks, few months at the most. Paul talks about his visit, about the way he conducted himself. I was like a mother with you. I was like a father with you. And so he goes on. He talks about what he taught them. And it seems to require a lot more than two weeks. And uh, Philippians 4.16, he says, Let me remind you, you sent a gift to me twice when I was in Thessalonica. So, again, the experts tell us it's probably more like three months that he was there and that the three Sabbaths, he's talking about being able to be in the synagogue and to talk before they kicked him out. 
and started trouble. But overall, considerable success. Some Jews believed. A lot of Gentiles, many of them would have been the devout Gentiles, those Gentiles that had uh, stopped worshipping the uh, uh, Jewish and Greek gods and they had come to attend the synagogue. They hadn't become Jews, but they were worshippers of God. And clearly, some who were absolute pagans had also believed. And Paul says, you turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. There were some influential women, leading women, also converted. And it's clear that Paul in his preaching reached every stratum of society. His evangelism wasn't done in a, in a corner. And so a church is planted. And again, we have the evidence of this in Paul's two letters. It seems it was mainly a Gentile church, but Paul says they were active. They were clear in witness to a very wide area. They became known. They were obviously strikingly different to the culture around them. And from the beginning, they were enduring persecution from their neighbors and their fellow citizens. Paul says they were an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And in the little brief reading we had from 1 Thessalonians 1, he already talks about the persecution that they were suffering. So that's the first of our two cities. And they're sent on then to Berea, 50, 60 miles, perhaps another three days of walking to get there. It's also a prosperous center with a Jewish community. And Paul starts at the synagogue again. You've got to admire his courage. And he follows the same method. He goes to the Old Testament And he shows them about the Messiah. And then he says, the Messiah has come. Here he is. And it says these Jews were different. They were more noble. And they searched the Old Testament for themselves, eagerly examining the scriptures, it says. Examining daily to see if these things were so. And this time, a good number of the Jews are convinced, but also Gentiles, men and women, including, as before, some influential women, and the Jewish troublemakers arrive from Thessalonica, stirring up trouble. So they send Paul off immediately to Athens, 300 miles, good journey. A close translation says, the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. And uh, our NIV Bible says that means he went by sea all the way to Athens, and he might well have done. But he had two minders, at least two minders, maybe more, with him all the way. If they just put him on a boat, would he have needed to be accompanied? Perhaps he would. But some think he actually went by road down to Athens. We don't really know. But I'm trying to give you the 
the color and what was happening to Paul in all of these times. Another church was planted. And so that was the second of our two cities. What, what can we say about this that's of help to us? That's of history. It's very interesting and fascinating and there's a lot to admire there. But what, what does it say to us nearly 2,000 years later as Christians and followers of the Lord Jesus? Well, there are two things that really stand out. One where they were the same and one where they were different. First of all was the fact of persecution. And we need to say the obvious, that it, persecution today is nothing new. There was persecution right from the start. Those Gentiles in Thessalonica, they found persecution right from the beginning. It didn't happen some weeks later. They were opposed. And this didn't stop Paul. I'm sure he knew the words of the Lord. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Paul was a man of great courage and determination. But it didn't stop people turning to the Lord either. He had even warned the Thessalonians. He said, I kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and you now know, he said. But it didn't stop them turning to the Lord. And of course, this, exactly this kind of opposition occurs today in different parts of our world. And uh, there are many reports of it. Sometimes it comes from the government. And the most notorious country in our world is, the, is North Korea, where there are thousands of Christians in labor camps, and the sole reason being that they are Christian believers. Maybe they've been found with a Bible. But it doesn't stop them. And it doesn't stop others becoming Christians either. Christians in Pakistan, just to take another example, Christians in Pakistan live knowing that they are always under the threat of being accused of blasphemy, which at best means imprisonment and might even be execution. This is a threat that they live with. Newspaper slander and misrepresentation in the um, news for prayer and praise. You'll see where this is happening in Turkey. It's happened to at least pastor, two pastors in Turkey. And there are many other worse things. This kind of opposition is going on. Words are twisted. People brought up into court. It's happening in China now. And our own UK Foreign Secretary said over the Christian period that on average 250 Christians are killed every month in our world. This is the opposition that there is. It didn't discourage Paul and it didn't discourage the Thessalonians and Christians today are going forward. We should not be discouraged when we hear about it. Sometimes I think we are tempted when we hear lots of reports coming. 
but we should praise God for his grace in the lives of these people. And we should learn from their courage and faith. And we should pray for them and we should do all that we can to help them. Some of them are in great need. Persecution is a fact. The second thing that I want to draw your attention to this morning and I want to major on is the difference between the two cities and the importance that the Bereans felt to search the scriptures for themselves. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Paul start with the Old Testament? Seemed to bring the wrath of the Jews on him. Well, as we said, for him it was God's word. It was reliable, authoritative, and in the words of Jesus, it could not be broken. The Thessalonian Jews and the Berean Jews, they would have said they believed the same. This is the word of God. It was their authority in life, they said. God has spoken to us. And the devout Gentiles, well, they had come to respect the Jewish God. They had come to respect the Old Testament scriptures, although they weren't actually Jews. So the Old Testament was important to them. They had it in common, Paul and his hearers. So he opens up the scriptures. And of course they were right. Jesus said that the Old Testament spoke about him and that he had come to fulfill the Old Testament. He once said to the Jewish leaders, you search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. But you don't see me in them, he said. And he said to those two walking on the road to Emmaus, uh, just after the crucifixion, late afternoon, and he tell, asks them what the trouble is, you remember the story, and he says to them, was it not necessary that Christ the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that same day, later on in the evening, he spoke to all the disciples and he said, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's all there, he said. And so in his preaching... Paul was just following what the Lord Jesus said. Look, it's here. This is the Messiah. But what about the Gentiles? Well, we have at least two examples of Paul preaching to the Gentiles. And he didn't start with the Old Testament then. And uh, he spoke uh, more about the goodness and the kindness of God. Uh, and then he came to the Gospel. And as he said in Athens, God commands all men everywhere to repent. But Paul and the other apostles taught the new Christians, Gentiles, that the Old Testament was very important for them too. Mm. 
You find that in Corinthians, for instance, he enlarged upon Jewish history in the wilderness. And he said, now you know this story. Here are lessons for us. Don't you be like them. Avoid this, and so on. In his letters, he has many, many quotes. He's not writing necessarily to Jews. Often he's writing to Gentiles. But he has quotation after quotation from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was important even for Gentile Christians. And writing to the Romans, <laughs> he said to them, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Get a hold of the Old Testament, he tells them. It was their Bible. But of course, alongside the Old Testament, they had the words of the apostles and their authority. And you read Paul, he often appeals to his authority to teach and tell them the truth. His letters were read in the churches and they were passed round to other churches. Peter, in his first letter, he says, look, the word that was preached to you, and he's talking about the gospel, the word that was preached to you was God's word. Not just our ideas, but God's word, as much as the Old Testament and the prophets. It's the word of the Lord that endures forever. And interestingly, Peter in his second letter talks about Paul's letter. And he said, <laughs> Paul says some things very hard to understand sometimes. But they're like, and people twist them, he said, like they do the other scriptures. You see the level that he's putting Paul's teaching on. Very important. Mm. And then what about the early church? The early church came to regard the writings of the apostles or their close colleagues as their authority. There were many spurious documents circulating in uh, the first two or three centuries. And over a period of a couple of hundred years, the churches gradually began to recognize which documents were authentic and which were not. Which documents spoke to them and which they could see were, had no real value, which were authentic in terms of history and, and which were not. And they would report in the various uh, councils that they had, um, they would report to one another, till eventually there was one council which said, right, these are the books then that we are going to recognize as authority. And so the canon, as we call it, of our New Testament was formed. Now, contrary uh, to Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, this was not imposed on the church by a council. It was the council that recognized what the churches were saying. And they said, right, now we can define this. And so it was given to the church, not imposed by a council and not imposed by Constantine either. That's how we have the canon of the New Testament. And this is God's word to us today. So here's the question. Are we like the Bereans? Those in a position to know say there is a great concern about Christian people generally 
in the world today that so many of them are biblically illiterate. They are familiar with a few passages and they might have a Bible or two in their homes. They know some basic facts about the gospel. They're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, they're Christians. They're looking to him for the forgiveness of sins. But they don't really know the Bible, God's word. They don't know it. Does it matter? I mean, if a person is a Christian, a believer on the Lord Jesus, does it matter that they don't look into the scriptures for themselves? What is the advantage? Why is it important? First of all, it's our authority. The Old Testament was the authority for Jesus and it was his guidance. It was the authority for the early church. And the Bible has been the authority for Christians down through the centuries and it's our authority today. We have the words of the Old Testament, the words of the apostles written down and it's our authority. This is how we know what God says. This is how we know what Christianity is. Hmm? There are all kinds of variations by sometimes by very clever men that will tell us what their view of Christianity is. But our authority is this book, God's Word to us. Not ideas of human devising, as Peter said in his letter, but the Word of God handed down to us. Christian testimony is valuable to us. When you hear someone say about how the Lord has been real and near and helpful, that's very valuable. But nothing takes the place of knowing God's Word for yourself. Not only is it our authority, it also teaches us. Teaches us what is right, how to live. Talks about attitudes and behavior. There are large parts of the New Testament letters that go into detail about our attitudes and behavior. There are warnings for us to heed. There are principles that we can draw from this scripture that help us in our lives. Hmm? It teaches us. It gives us understanding of God's ways. Well, don't misunderstand me. God's ways are often mysterious. But it does teach us in general terms what God intends, what he intends for his people, and what he intends when this world ends. We see that in the scriptures. It's our authority. It teaches us. We see something about what God intends and it's a help and encouragement to us personally. We have an enemy in our Christian life. He wants to drag us down. In times of temptation, sometimes temptation is very attractive. Satan is very supple, subtle in the way he presents it to us. But the Bible gives us sometimes such clear guidance, we scarcely need to think. We know a thing 
is not right. Remember that Jesus used the scripture when he was tempted. He used it to refute the suggestions of Satan. It's important for us in this matter of temptation. The scripture is important too if things go wrong. You know, sometimes in a church things do go wrong. And you hear of people that get upset and they go off, and, well, that's it, I've, I've finished, I've finished with Christianity. Why were they in the church in the first place? Was it because they liked the people and, well, they liked the language and, yeah, I could go along with these things. But were they ever really convinced from the scripture the truth of what they said they believed? Because if they were, they would have to find somewhere else to go. They couldn't just stay separate. We need for our continuity and our perseverance when things go wrong. We need to know the scriptures and be grounded in them. In discouragement, when hard circumstances come, Paul wrote about the encouragement of the scriptures. Think about the person who feels they have completely failed the Lord. Perhaps they have denied him in a really bad way. They've kept silent when they should have said something. And, and they feel really bad about it. Well, yes, there are the promises of the gospel. They would know some of them, perhaps. But, but really, what's God's attitude? If you know the story of the Apostle Peter... Mm -hmm. that goes alongside all the promises you see exactly what happened to Peter who had denied his Lord despite the warnings that were given to him and you read the story of how he restored Peter to full fellowship and it was Peter that opened the door to the Jews and the Samaritans and the Gentiles as we read the book of Acts hmm Think about the person that sinned and has taken decisions in his or her life that has radically changed the direction of their life and they now realize how wrong they were. Will God forgive me? Well, yes, yes, perhaps he will. There are the promises of forgiveness. But, but really, will I just be laid on one side now? Will he not really use me? Am I just enduring second best all the time now? If you know the story of King David, if you know his history, and you know how he was restored when he had repented, and how God blessed him, and he became the great king that the Jews have looked back to ever since. Hmm? Yes, God restores and can bring us back even into a place of usefulness. None of us is so mature, so strong in the faith, or immune to the discouragement of Satan, that we don't need the encouragement of the Scriptures. We all do. In the biography of John Stott, there's a story of how he was in Australia. Now, if you don't know John Stott, he was a world-renowned um, Anglican minister 
renowned for his preaching of the gospel, renowned for his exposition of the scriptures, renowned for his teaching in universities, uh, missions, and in churches. He was God's great gift to the churches for many years. He was in Australia on a tour, conducting missions in universities, preaching in churches, and he'd been going for six weeks, and he was really tired. He was feeling low. He just heard that his father had died. He wanted to be home to be with his mother and his sister. He was depressed. And yet he still had to go on. He had another mission to conduct. And he didn't know how he was going to do it. it he wrote it all down for us. I'm not making it up. <laughs> he said, I shut myself in my room. And he spent some hours there in prayer and reading the scriptures. Till eventually I came upon Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call upon him in truth. Now you and I might pass over that, and I'm sure he'd read it many times before. But that verse took hold of him. And the Holy Spirit ministered to him. And he came to the Lord again and said, Lord, I'm coming to you as sincerely as I know how. And he found new strength. And he was able to go on. Now we find that in the scriptures when we know them. It's not a matter of just opening and putting a pin in, I'll find a verse. We need to know the scriptures. All of us. God speaks to us through his word. Sometimes it's almost as if, I'm sure he did, put our finger on the promise as we turn to God. Hmm. If we don't know his word, how can we know God speaking to us? We need to be like the Bereans. That's why I had the question earlier on. Hmm? Are we like the Bereans? We need to treasure God's word. We need to get to know it. And we can ask ourselves, am I a Berean? I'm quite finished. You thought I had. I want to suggest it's important that we take practical steps. Mm -hmm. You say to me, well, I can't imagine that the Bereans all went home, got out their Bibles and began to go through. No, of course, not many of them would have had the scrolls. But they made it their business to find out what the scriptures said. And I'm sure they were asking the various leaders, what Paul said about this, is it there? Is it in Isaiah? Is it there in Psalm 22 and so on? They wanted to make sure that what they were hearing came from the scriptures. Now, not everybody is book literate. There are some people that can read and write, but they never attempt books. They're not book literate. But there's no reason why we shouldn't know what the scripture says. We need to take every opportunity when the scriptures are being taught. I mean, if I can really come down to brass tacks, the 
elders sometimes arrange something called uh, going deeper, I think it is. But not many trouble to come out on a Sunday night to go very deep. Mm. But we could. Mm. We could learn about the scripture. Mm. We can ask questions. The uh, service sheet is telling us if you have some questions, please give them to the elders and uh, they'll try and answer them. <laughs> ask them some hard ones. <laughs> um, but we can ask questions. We can learn what the scripture is saying. Perhaps even better, we can go online these days and you can hear some of the best Bible preachers of today and yesterday in Britain and America. Some, the very best you can hear. There's a lot that isn't the best, but that you can hear the very best ones. Find out their names. Listen to them. Take time. Find out what the scripture says. Then there are many different plans for reading the scriptures for ourselves. Uh, there's one. We'll give you ten chapters a day. And the man says it'll take you about 45 minutes to an hour. If you read through steadily. Don't get sidetracked. Just read through. Get the what the scriptures are saying. Just get it into your head and the way his scheme works that you keep cross-referencing different parts of the Bible all the time. You, you don't just work through. He has about ten different parts that you're reading at the same time. But uh, that's a bit ambitious if uh, a bit rewarding as well. Then there's a, another scheme very common um, originally formed in the 19th century giving you four chapters a day. And that will take you through the Bible in a year. The Old Testament once, New Testament and Psalms twice. But if four chapters is ambitious, well, try dividing that in two and do that same study, but, but do it two every day instead of four, and it'll take two years over it. Then there are all kinds of booklets to help you read the Bible. Um, they usually give you a, a small portion and then they'll have a few comments about it to help you understand or even to draw its lessons, sometimes a little story to ram it all home. That's important, especially when you're just starting to read the Bible. But it is important, if you can, to learn to read longer chunks of the Bible so you get things in context. But there is something for everyone to help us in our reading of the Scripture today. Everybody. And it may seem a daunting prospect at the beginning. Oh, I'm going to sit down and read the Bible every day. I'm going to try and read the Bible in a year or so on. But the more you do it, the more rewarding it is. Get a study Bible. Oh, that's frightening sometimes for some people. And you see a study Bible because it's a lot fatter than this because it's got notes alongside it. But don't be frightened of the term. It's not a highly academic book, although there's sound academics sort of as a foundation. But a study Bible will help you, and often there's, usually, there's a comment verse by verse. So when, if you're a bit stuck, you look across and you can get some uh, idea of perhaps how you can understand it. And these study Bibles also have uh, longer articles when you're ready to re read them uh, about 
introducing the Bible and all sorts of things and about the temple and various topics that come up as you read. They're all there. The one I use is the ESV, the English Standard Version Bible, uh, Study Bible, and I find that very helpful. There's another one. There's a New International Study Bible. It's uh, more akin with the New International Version that we use here. And there are other study Bibles. Get hold of one and just use it bit by bit. You don't have to pass an exam or a degree, but you need to get to know the Scriptures. I have to tell you one regret I had, I have, that in a, a very busy life, and sometimes our life was pretty hectic, that in a very busy life I didn't make more time to read the Scriptures. It's a regret now. And uh, I'm doing my best to uh, do something about it. I did read the Scriptures, but not enough. Don't look at it as just another thing you have to do because I'm a Christian, I've got to do it. The blessing is all ours. So just ask yourself, am I a Berean? 